Well, good evening. We are beginning a new series today on the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. We call it Colossians. A few weeks ago, if you're with us on Easter, we celebrated the wonderful reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the new life that that begins in that moment, the new creation life that begins in that moment. And we talked about our union with Christ keeps us or brings us into this life that, that never ends. And so this next series coming out of the reality of the resurrection is to think about, well, how do we live and grow in this new life in Christ? The burden of Paul in writing this letter is for the maturity of this young church in this town. And uh, it's that heart that I want to bring through in this series as we see Paul writing to this church and urging them to come to maturity in Jesus. And I w- let me just address two different groups here. One is if you're a longtime follower of Jesus and you've been walking with him for years, perhaps for decades, then I want you to consider this series as an invitation to do a checkup or a tune-up as we continue to grow to maturity in Christ. It's not like any of us ever arrive. Uh, We know that. It takes our whole lives to continue to grow, to be like him. Uh, And and I, I think there's a lot of depth to what it means to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And it's not just kind of saying the right things and believing the right things and coming on Sunday, but it, it is a, it's a full process of growing in honesty with ourselves and with God, of being truthful, and, and then of get, continuing to grow in him. So just consider this series as an opportunity to dig into this powerful letter so deeply focused on Jesus. That is the theme of this letter. Of course, it's the theme of the New Testament. It's the theme of the Old Testament as well, but it is centrally the theme of Colossians, and, uh, and just to be encouraged as you continue your walk with him. If you're here, though, this evening and you're really on the edge, maybe thinking about the life of faith, maybe you still have a lot of questions, or maybe you would even say, look, I believe, but I don't think this really affects my life very much. You know, what really drives my life is my career or my studies or whatever it might be. Uh, Then my hope is that actually as we dig into this book together that you'll be invited to come into this life of faith more deeply and to begin to walk more intentionally as a disciple of Jesus and to grow to be like him and find the joy and fullness of life in him. The thesis of the book of Colossians is found in verse 6 of chapter 2. So we'll get there in a few weeks. But it says this. It says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. You've received him. You've come to life in him. Now the urging is to walk in him. And that's what this letter is about. So everything we get up to this point, to chapter 2, verse 6, is introductory material, and that's what we're going to deal with um, this evening. We'll be in chapter 1, and we'll deal with verses 1 through 8 that were read just a few minutes ago. This is on page 983 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and I would encourage you to open up to that section of Scripture and follow along with me as we study this text. Um, Just a a reminder as we do so that this is Paul writing to a church 2,000 years ago. So there's a lot that they are dealing with that we're not dealing with today. They're in the Roman Empire. Uh, They're dealing with kind of a whole different sort of set of problems and narratives than we are in a postmodern 21st century context. And at the same time, we believe that the Spirit has inspired these words from the Apostle Paul. And as we come alongside of this text humbly and seek to listen to what it is that the Holy Spirit is saying to the church 2,000 years ago through the Apostle Paul, that we will begin to hear what he's saying to us in the present day. And even though there's discontinuity, between us and the church back then, there's tremendous continuity as well. We are still the people of God, still adopted by his grace to be his sons and daughters, still walking in the power of the Spirit. So there's a lot that we can learn as we dig into this text together. 
to deal first with the first two verses, and this is just setting context, really. You know, what is this letter? Um, so we get the sender, the recipients, and we get the greeting in these first two verses. And so just to cover that territory quickly, the sender is the Apostle Paul, and he identifies himself here as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So this is saying, look, I'm, I'm writing this letter, he's saying, with authority, the authority of an apostle. An apostle is one who's been sent, and the apostles were those who lived with Jesus. Paul was an anomalous apostle in that he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, but he also is now included in this foundational group. We read about the church being built on Jesus, the cornerstone, but on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Paul is one of these apostles writing to the church from a position of authority. But notice that he's, and he's also, I should say, writing from prison. Most likely the prison was in Ephesus in the mid-50s. It's possible it was in Rome in the, in the early 60s. But he's writing to them from prison. Notice, though, he doesn't say he's the only sender. He says, and Timothy, our brother, and just a, a quick gloss on this, eight out of the 13 letters that Paul writes that we have in the New Testament are written not just from Paul, but from Paul and someone else or several others. In this case, it's Timothy. He says, Timothy, our brother. And I, I just want to make the point that even though all authority in the church is not the same, in other words, Paul is an apostle, Timothy is actually not, all authority in the church is shared. It is exercised in partnership with others. Jesus, you'll remember, sends out the disciples two by two in the shared context of his authority in ministry. And so Timothy's not an apostle, but he is shared in Paul's ministry, and he does share in the sending of this letter. I think that's a helpful thing just to remember. So he's writing, as he says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, and really it's in or at Colossae. Um, these two in qualifiers, there are two things that we learn about this group. One is they're in Christ. So this is a letter that's written to Christians uh, about 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and it's, it's a letter, as I said, written to them to grow to maturity. So they're in Christ. And we'll say a lot more about that as we get into this series. But this is just, this is like monumental, really. This is a place, it's a location that encompasses every dimension of reality. They are in Christ. They've been baptized and, and died with Christ and raised with Christ. So this is their chief mark and defining identity. And they're in Colossae. Uh, Colossae, this, this ancient Roman city in the Roman Empire, it's in what we know today as Turkey and southwest at the time, southwest Asia Minor. It was not really a big city. It was it had its heyday earlier than the time of the Apostle Paul. It was overshadowed by Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were to, to the west, 10 and 16 miles respectively. It's on a river there in, in Turkey, and uh, there's really nothing there today. Actually, somebody told me after the morning service they've been to Colossae, and it's just a mound um, in Turkey. Maybe some of you have been there, but there's nothing there today. So they, but they share this common location. It'd be like we share the city of Boston together, which meant that there was a, a lot of religious kind of ideas and marketplace because this is the Roman Empire. What we know about Colossae, we only know because we know about other similar kinds of towns in the Roman Empire. This is where they, uh, they share a life and an identity together. And he describes them in two ways. Saints and faithful brothers. Saints doesn't mean that these guys are squeaky clean or women are squeaky clean. It means in terms of holiness. It means that they have been washed in the blood of Jesus. They've been forgiven of their sins, which this is at the heart of our Christian convictions about what God does in the cross. That they've been cleansed. They've been brought out of the common, if you will, 
life of humanity and brought into this special place of being family members of the living God. And so saints isn't a word that's just for those of us who might be described as like especially holy. In the New Testament, saints is a word for anyone who's been brought into the life of Jesus. And so Paul's writing to the saints and then he says faithful brothers and it could be brothers and sisters. Um, it's just a, that that word would indicate all the siblings in a family. And what that says is that the church is a family. The church is a group of people who maybe not tied by blood, except by the blood of Jesus. They are one people and they are now brothers and sisters. And this is a significant metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament to describe what it means to be brought into Jesus. So Paul's writing to this family in Colossae of people who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, set apart their saints. And then he greets them, grace to you and peace from God our Father. These are massive words. We're not going to dig into them now, but they are the foundational realities of the Christian life. Grace, grace is about the favor of God, the unmerited favor of God, his radical gift to us of life through his son. And peace is what is produced as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus as we've already passed the peace of Christ in the service. The peace of God is something that we long for and we try to long, we try for peace in all kinds of other ways, but this is the peace where we find genuine and lasting peace, not like the world gives, Jesus says. And Paul, he greets them in this way, wanting them to have these realities amidst the, fret, the, the threats that they're facing in Colossae, and we'll get into those in later weeks. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that what he greets them with here, he's also longing to produce in them through the writing of this letter, meaning this letter from the apostle is meant to produce additional grace and peace among the church in Colossae. So that's the, <clears throat> just dealing with some of the kind of getting our bearings in verses one and two, but what I really want to do is deal with verses three through eight and think about the fruit of truth and do this in three parts as we think about this, because Paul opens up in verse three, if you'll look with me at verse three, his letter, he often opens his letters with a thanksgiving for the people to whom he's writing. And that's what he does here. He says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So we thank God. And he's about to say what he thanks them for. And it really, it's that he, he thanks them for the presence of this church there in Colossae. But I want us just to kind of slow down and take out three parts of this and deal with these verses and we'll do it in a slightly um, not straightforward order because I want to start in verse 5b through verse 6, then go to verse 7 and then come back to verse 4 through 5a. But these are essentially three planks that are the basis for which Paul gives thanks and therefore are three planks that we want to be involved in as well as I hope to make clear in asking some questions along the way. But the first is that there is a word of truth truth. Verse 4, or verse 5b, I should say. Of this, he says, you have heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let's get this really clear, that the Christian claim is a claim for truth. Absolute truth. In the words of Leslie Newbegin, who spent his ministerial years in the mid-20th century in India and then moved back to the UK where he was from in the 70s and suddenly um, was a, just a tremendous voice of thinking about how to, in a sense, re 
re-pursue the Western culture. As he came back, he realized the West was secular. But he said this. He said, the claim of the Christian community is that in Jesus, the absolute truth has been made present amid the relativities of human cultures. And that is the Christian claim, that truth himself entered into this world in the midst of the relativities of human cultures and spoke and moved and lived and changed everything for us. Paul calls this the word of the truth in verse 5. And then he says the gospel or the good news. And then in verse 6, he talks about understanding the grace of God in truth. The Christian claim is a claim of truth. Norman Anderson was one of the great apologists and students of world religions from a Christian perspective in the 20th century. He was a British man, and he said this. He said, Christianity alone has dared to claim that the one omnipresent, omniscient ground of all existence has uniquely intervened in his creation, not by assuming the mere form or appearance of a man, but by actually becoming incarnate, not by living and teaching alone, but by actually dying a felon's death for us men and for our salvation and by putting his seal of the fact and efficacy of this intervention by rising again from the dead. Truth is obviously under assault in the postmodern world in which we live. It's almost axiomatic that truth is not absolute. Truth is relative. We hear regularly in popular culture, you know, thank you for sharing your truth with us. And it's very much the kind of standard dogma of the age that truth is something that is unique to each individual. But the Christian claim is that there is such a thing as truth with a capital T. His name is Jesus. And this claim is something that we struggle with in a world where truth is seen as relative. Because it's often perceived, if you say that we have the truth, it's perceived as a a kind of will to power in the postmodern world. Postmodernism is almost defined by an incredulity toward meta-narratives or any claims to truth. And so when we say that we have the truth, it comes across maybe as sort of high-minded or somehow, you know, we we think that we've got it and nobody else does. And it also can come across as a challenge to to other religious faiths and traditions, as of course it does. Actually, these are words from Gandhi, you know, one of the great voices of the 20th century. But he was standard in thinking about this, this way of relativistic truth. He said, the need of the moment is not one religion, but mutual respect and tolerance of the, of the different religions. Any attempt to root out traditions, effects of heredity, is not only bound to fail, but it is a sacrilege. The soul of religions is one, but it is, it is encased in a multitude of forms. The latter will persist to the end of time. Truth is the exclusive property of no single scripture. He goes on, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. And Gandhi represents a wide swath of the culture in the mid-20th century as well as perhaps even greater today. This is relative. There's no claim that can, can, can claim, uh, no, no, no territory that can claim absolute truth. But for Paul long ago, writing to this little community, this young church in Colossae, and for faithful Christians in every subsequent age, he speaks about the word of truth, the gospel. And this claim is integral to the Christian faith. It is the foundation for which Paul is going to give thanks. And we should say this is not, we don't have claims on this because we were smart enough, spiritual enough, religiously curious enough, righteous enough. 
The only reason that we know this truth is because God, the God of heaven and earth, has chosen in his mercy and grace to make it known to his world in the person of his son, Jesus. No one has ever seen God, John says, but God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's Jesus. God sent Jesus into the world to enable us to know this absolute reality that is God, that stands above every other culture and moment in time. The scandal of it is that it was a particularity, that Jesus entered into the world in a particular time and place in history, in a culture, as a man. All of these things that are particular. And yet, that is the demonstration of the absolute in the particular. And there's a lot to wrestle with there. You know, and Paul is actually defending the gospel that he preaches in Galatians chapter 1, which is a fighting letter. He says, look, I didn't receive this from any man, he says. It's not man's gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Like manna that came down out of heaven and fed the Israelites as they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, so also the gospel of Jesus came down out of heaven and gives life to the dead and sustains us on our journey to our home." To the new creation world. It is a gift from God, this truth. And I want to say this as well, because this is important, because often in a culture in which truth is seen as relative, again, claims to truth can be seen as claims to power, or movements to power, to control, to manipulate other people. And this is really important for us as Christians, that in the gospel, the truth is never just a set of abstract propositions that we inflict upon the world. The truth is a person. His name is Jesus. We live and move in him by the power of his spirit. And we are to embody the truth in the way that we live and love and serve and pursue justice and mercy. The truth is never abstract in the Christian life. It is always to be embodied in you and in me and in the way that we live together And this says so much to the world. This is why we can claim the truth as we begin to live the life of Jesus before the world. It is so important that we don't just go off on our apologetic soapbox with the truth as propositional realities. It is propositional, but it is always critical that this truth is incarnated in the people of God in every culture where it exists, even in Colossae long ago. And that's why Paul writes for them to grow to maturity but okay so this is plank number one the truth so I just let me stop here and ask do you believe in the truth of Jesus honestly I mean in this culture it's hard isn't it this is a thing that comes under attack again and again and it might just be that you live in a, such a relativistic culture that it's easy for this key reality that Paul goes to here the word of the truth the gospel starts to just get eroded so that the doubts creep in And you begin to hold it sort of provisionally. Well, if that's where you are, I'd love to engage with you on that. I'm not going to be able to fix that in just these few words here. But just to recognize that for Paul, writing this letter long ago, this was the foundation. This is the reason he's able to give thanks to God as he prays, as we'll see in a moment. Because there is truth. And because it's come from heaven, come from God, into our world. Now, the second thing to say is actually in verse 7. So there is truth, but there's always, and God is at work in this truth. And I should say that he talks about this gospel that is in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. That the truth of God is powerful. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So this truth is active in the world by the power of God. But often and most often, God uses a mediator to bring that truth into our lives. And this is verse 7. Just as you learned it, that is this truth, from Epaphras, 
our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. A faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. That is to say that God most often uses mediators, people, intermediaries, vehicles, who are used by God to bring his truth into the lives of others. And in the case of this young church in Colossae, God used Epaphras. Now, we think Epaphras was a a native of Colossae who ended up in Ephesus when Paul spent three years there, met the Apostle Paul, encountered the truth of the gospel through Paul, was transformed in his life, went back to his hometown, and was the vehicle that God used to bring the truth of the gospel into the lives of the people in Colossae to whom Paul is writing right now. So Paul calls him a faithful minister or servant of Christ on your behalf. That's who Epaphras was. I love to hear people's testimonies. I hope you do as well. If you're a, a Christian, this is some, one of the best things, is to hear the testimonies of other people. We started a new members class today. I didn't get to go, but probably about 30 people in the class who are all going to share. And if you've gone through our new members class, you've done that as well. You share your testimony. You share how you came to know Jesus. And I'm going to guess, and what I love to listen for in the testimonies of other people are who was the Epaphras in their story. You know who it was in yours, don't you? You you can all right now who are Christians here, you can come up with who Epaphras was, who that intermediary was that delivered the truth to you, the truth of the gospel to you that led you to come to genuine life. And I love to listen for that in in the stories of people who come about how they came to faith. A couple years ago, I shared a little bit with you about Francis Collins, the world-renowned scientist who was the head of the NIH. And You know, the Epaphras in his life was this elderly woman on a hospital bed in a North Carolina hospital where he was doing his training. And he was so taken by her, by her, and she shared with him about Jesus regularly, about her faith, about her prayer. They had this, developed this relationship and he found himself drawn to her. And at one point she finally goes, well, what do you believe? You know, she got a little personal with him in the hospital room. And he said it was that question that actually drove him on this path and journey of discovering the truth of the gospel. So she was an Epaphras in his life that led him to come to genuine faith. A few weeks ago on Easter, I shared this story, the testimony of a member of this church. Um, and he said that he was, he was, that the Epaphras in his life was an American student. He was overseas who came to, to overseas to study. And, and she asked him the question, do you believe in God? And then he says in his words that she spoke the name of Jesus Christ in a manner that conveyed his reality and personhood, not just a liturgical phrase or swear word, which until then was the only ways that I had heard his name spoken. She was the Epaphras in his life, the one who was the delivery mechanism that God used to bring the truth of the gospel to him, that he might find genuine and true life. Then there's Christopher Alam, who is a worldwide evangelist for the faith who grew up as a Muslim in Bangladesh under a a really authoritarian father who was um, longing for him to follow his ways in Islam. And he found his soul stirring. They were living in Pakistan for a time, in Lahore, Pakistan. And it's the second largest city in Pakistan. And he went out to buy an electric water heater for the family. And he's passing by a busy street corner. And he encounters someone in his own words. He says, I noticed a Caucasian man on a street corner giving out gospel tracts wearing scruffy jeans. He looked like a hippie. He was well over six feet tall and stood out from all the rush of shoppers. And he said, I approached him because I was curious about his demeanor, which radiated an inner peace. And I asked him the question, who are you and where are you from? He said he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ from England. 
and that engaged them in a conversation. This was in the 1970s. Keith was his name. Apparently, he belonged to the Jesus people, and he was just kind of a Jesus freak out there telling people about who Jesus was in the late 70s, and this man encountered him. He was the Epaphras in his life that brought him to a saving faith in Jesus. Christopher says this. He says, I sense that this was what I'd been waiting for all of my life after he bowed on the street corner with Keith to receive Christ as his Lord on a crowded sidewalk. He says, I sense that this is what I've been waiting for all my life. It felt like a huge boulder had been lifted off of my back. I saw everything in technicolor, and I wanted to sing and to laugh. That was the beginning of him coming to a genuine faith. And God has used his story and his life around the world to this day to preach of Jesus, the good news. He's now become an Epaphras in the lives of so many others because Keith, whoever Keith was, was on the street corner in Lahore, Pakistan in the late 70s declaring Jesus as king. Who was your Epaphras? Maybe for some of you it was your mom. That's awesome if it was, by the way, or your dad. The key plan of discipleship and the biblical witness is for parents to pass on the faith to their children. So if that's your story, that's a great story. And if you're a mom or dad here, may God help us to be the Epaphras in the lives of our children. But who was yours? And then the the other question I want to ask you about this is, who might you be the Epaphras for? Do you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus in your workplace? I've heard that story more than once in the last couple of years of someone who was just hit a rock bottom and was trying to figure out who could I process my life with and then remembered their colleague at work had said that they were going to church that weekend. Went and struck up a conversation and that person then became the Epaphras in their life to lead them to a genuine knowledge of the truth in Jesus. So that's the second. There is truth. That is a Christian claim and that's why Paul's able to give thanks but he's also able to give thanks because there was an Epaphras who went to Colossae and was faithful to bearing witness to that truth and was the vehicle through which the truth was delivered into the lives of these young Christians who now Paul is writing to. But then the third thing and the final thing, back to verse 4, is the, the reason Paul is giving thanks to God always when he prays for these Colossians is he says, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the, and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You hear those three words, faith, love, and hope. We usually say faith, hope, and love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but he reverses the order here, faith, love, and hope. That is this gospel that is bearing fruit around the world, this gospel that is a power of God for salvation, that is rooted in and is the word of the truth, that is delivered through people who are faithful witnesses like Epaphras, this gospel is bearing fruit in the in transformed lives of people in this new kind of community that is unlike any community that has ever existed before or since. It is what I would call a non-competitive, revolutionary community of love in which people find their place and are deeply loved and able to become who they were created to be. This is the community that's been born in this Roman city, in a world where Caesar is Lord, Jesus has been declared as king, and this little community is that for which Paul gives thanks always when he prays. It is this community of faith marked by this reality that we have repented of our other lords and embraced Jesus as Lord 
And we've given our lives over to him. We've entrusted. There's a subjective dimension. There's a propositional dimension to faith. We affirm these truths about the truth, but there's also this reality that we, we hand over our lives. And that's the first marker. He says, since we heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus or the Messiah Jesus. That's what marks this community. It's the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Now, we have to remember in a church building in the center of Boston that's been here for 200 years that this was at a time when basically nobody knew who Jesus was and there were no like side benefits to knowing Jesus. In fact, there were a lot of problems and challenges like there are in many parts of the world today. To know Jesus, to declare Jesus is to accept significant pain and trial in your life in many parts of the world, in some degree even here in some ways. They had responded to this word of truth, the gospel. And they had put their faith in Jesus. And then he says, the second thing is that they, he had heard of the love that they have for all the saints. You know, this is one of my like, things that I like to bring up often, but it's here in the text, so I'm going to bring it up again. But Jesus says, they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Just just in case you think I'm being unjust and giving this double attention, look at verse 8 with me. Because what is it that Paul says Epaphras reports back? Most of all, verse 8, and he has made known to us your love. Your love in the Spirit. This is a love for all the saints. It's a love for the whole family of God. It's a love for the other Christians that live on your street but don't go to Park Street Church. This is a love for the Christians in this church that you don't really like. This is a love for all the saints, he says. That's what we've heard about you. This is the defining feature of a community that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. Love. And then he says hope, because of. And the word there is because of or through the hope laid up for you in heaven. And there is a sense in which I think we can read this rightly, that Paul is saying because of the hope that you have, which we're in Easter, the season of Eastertide, we're living in the kind of basking in the glow of the resurrection worship of a few few weeks ago of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and death no longer has dominion over him and so those of you who are in Christ can never die as he says to Martha at Lazarus's tomb in John 11 that is our hope laid out for us in heaven and part of what Paul is saying we've heard about your your faith in Christ Jesus we've heard about your love for all of the saints and we know that this faith and this love are coming out of this real hope that you have laid up for you in heaven And how this works is, look, if we know that we will never die, if we know that we're unioned with Christ through faith and that what is true of him is true of us and that death no longer has dominion over him, if we know that we've been given this gift of living water that means that we will never die, that we will live and we will reign with Christ in glory in the new creation to come, and we know and know that we know that, then why not, out of that hope, There is a growing and genuine deepening of faith in the the Lord Jesus himself. You know that's true. So more and more, hand over your life to his lordship. Offer it up to him. And we know that. So why not more and more? Instead of constantly living in a self-centered way, which we're always tempted to do, and we all do week after week, why not just grow in love for all the saints? It is our hope, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, this sure reality that we will never die and we will reign with Christ in glory for all of eternity. That's not just kind of like wishful thinking. That is the bedrock of our faith. The bedrock of this Christian reality is that we have been rescued from death 
and we will live with him forever. So if, if we know that, why not then more and more walk by faith in Jesus? That's the call in this whole letter. And why not more and more grow in a love for all the saints? Paul is saying there is this kind of relationship between faith, hope, and love here. And it's hope that is pers- uh, pressing you in more and more to faith and to love. So Paul wants to give thanks as he opens the letter. And he's laying some foundations for the rest of this letter. But He's giving thanks most of all for the fact that there is a word of truth, the gospel, that it's been delivered to them through a servant, a faithful minister of Christ, Epaphras, and that it's produced, it's bearing fruit in Colossae as all throughout the world in the formation of these new communities of love that are marked by the badge of faith in the Lord Jesus and that are deeply rooted in a hope that can never be touched or taken away. And as we sit here today, We are that community. That's where the continuity comes in. We are this community that has heard the word of truth, that has responded to that word of truth in repentance and faith, that is defined by faith in Christ Jesus, that is known, I pray, for love for all the saints, that is deeply clinging to our hope that is laid up for us in heaven. We are the community for which Paul gives thanks. Do you you know that truth? Might you be the Epaphras in someone else's life? And do you receive the miracle that this is? This is the outworking of that gospel. Bearing fruit in Boston in the 21st century. This is a tremendous privilege to be a part of the church of God. And it is something for which we are, like Paul, when we pray, always to give thanks for this. Paul gives thanks for this group. And he's about to then go into a prayer that we'll look at in two weeks' time when we're back in the series to share his heart for them that they would grow. This is our identity because of the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth and where we struggle to believe. I pray that you would help our unbelief. I do ask that you would deepen faith in this room, in my own heart and in the hearts of all those who are here. And Lord, where the hope laid up for us in heaven has been obscured, may you please give us a clear view again of the reality of the resurrection of your Son and of all that that means for each one of us. We are grateful to be rooted and grounded in what he has done. We give thanks to you, Lord, for Park Street Church. We give thanks to you for all the other churches in this city that proclaim this truth, the word of truth, this gospel. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is continuing to bear fruit 2,000 years later in our lives. We thank you. May we, Lord, like Epaphras, carry this truth into our world, our lives, for the glory, honor, and praise of your name and for the good of our neighbor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.